0: This is Tax Update for Saturday, September 24, 2005. Tax Update is a presentation on tax matters that is intended for those who are capable of doing their own independent tax research. The position stated on this podcast should not be relied upon without independently confirming the items discussed. Today's podcast is going to deal with a private letter ruling that came down in an area that we've run into recently, quite often, which deals with the fact that uh, taxpayers who have had investment losses in their IRA accounts and who have gone to arbitration holding a broker or advisor responsible for those losses and achieved a, an award have the problem of whether those funds can be placed back into the IRA account and under what circumstances that can be done. In the case of the taxpayer in this ruling, complicating the fact Complicating this matter was the fact that the taxpayer had filed a claim both on IRA balances that had been invested with two different companies and amounts that were in taxable accounts, and the settlement made no allocation between the two types of accounts, and the taxpayer was attempting to take a portion of the award and place that back into his IRA account. Now, I'm going to be posting this one, and hopefully, by the time I this one is up and on the web, I most likely will be in Roanoke, Virginia, for the Virginia Accounting and Auditing Conference to be held on later next week, I should say. Uh, I'll be lecturing on tax and technology matters for the Virginia Society of CPAs and Virginia Tech University. And hopefully, I'll be recording a new version there. These usually get recorded about a week ahead of time. So I record and then assemble the data and go from there. But as of right now, hopefully I am sitting in Roanoke when you download this, and hopefully everything is up and going. I plan to try and put this up and have it scheduled to come up just before I arrive there. Let's discuss, though, this ruling. As I say, the issue was that a taxpayer had invested his IRA money, rolled over into his IRA, and invested with a brokerage firm, or at least some firm, shall we say Company C, is the way it is worded in the private letter ruling. The ruling in question is Private Letter Ruling 2005-34026. The IRS released the redacted version of this private letter ruling on August 26th of 2005. Now, the taxpayer in 2001, he invested in 2000, March of 2000, Just in time to get ahead of the bear market, Uh, the taxpayer's IRA decreased substantially in company in this company. On in the during 2001, the taxpayer then went and transferred by a trustee-to-trustee transfer the balance in that IRA, which had gone down, to a new custodian, who proceeded to advise the client on investing, and the taxpayer invested the funds as advised and that decreased substantially, at which point taxpayer gave up and transferred the remaining balance left over into a bank IRA account. Doesn't say so, but it would appear that the taxpayer just went now for CDs and said, forget all of this investment idea. Taxpayer filed arbitration actions against both companies involved, claiming they had essentially invested his funds inappropriately and did not advise him properly with his investment goals taxpayer maintained an action against both retained counsel now while the ruling doesn't say so right away here clearly there were other funds involved with these advisors because when we get to the end of this we have an issue with how we're going to divide up the award and so obviously we should presume there are losses in the other accounts that were similar to the losses in the ira accounts now essentially at the end of the day the companies agreed in 2004 to settle these claims for a fixed dollar amount in exchange for the taxpayer dropping his arbitration proceedings against these entities and the taxpayers attorney received these funds on his behalf they went into the taxpayer into the attorneys trust account attorney withheld his legal fees as normal and then dispersed out an amount to each account, uh, dispersed out and prorated the balance based upon a calculation that was represented to be approximately equal, at least in their view, to the losses incurred in the IRA account versus the losses incurred in the other account. The taxpayer was looking for a ruling stating that the amount that went into the account that was calculated as due to the IRA account in which he wants to deposit into his IRA account, in fact had deposited, was a valid rollover of that contribution. The taxpayer wants that finding to say both he's allowed to make the contribution and, in fact, the contribution uh, is a rollover and it was okay to divide it up. The division was fine. Now the IRS went to rule. Now, we have a couple of rulings from the past that held where we had 100% of the award. Going in, at least we have one ruling back, 87 3, 4, that held in a case where we had a similar situation except the entire claim involved an IRA account, the taxpayer was allowed to transfer the balance in, and that was treated as a rollover. And the taxpayer was allowed in that case to get rollover treatment, exclude the amount from income. Now, realize the IRS ruling in that case was, again, it was a rollover. Uh, they basically put in section 408D3, uh, and essentially used the rollover provisions. Now, this may be important. We'll discuss why this is an issue. But in this particular ruling, they didn't make any comment about the one-year holding period or any of the one-year period for reinvestment. I should say where If you have a rollover from an account you can't have another rollover involving that account for one year from the date of the rollover. Well, they didn't make any mention of that. In this particular ruling we got basically the same result. Now what is interesting is they allowed the allocation between the two types of accounts. Now we don't know exactly how that was computed and exactly how good the evidence was that the taxpayer had that these two allocations were correct, you know how well they had done the work and what's behind them. That makes this ruling very dangerous, I would say, to try to run with without going for your own if you have this fact pattern where the amounts were combined or there's an unreasonable allocation, shall we say, between the two. In that fact pattern, it may be very dangerous to just presume that you could somehow borrow this holding and that this holding would then somehow make everything good for you. But what the taxpayer did do, though, was got it ruled that this was a rollover. Now, in this case, they did go ahead and point out carefully that, in fact, it also did not have a problem with the one-year rule under 408D3, Uh basically that there's no problem there under that with the one-year rule. Now, that can be interesting under paragraph, subparagraph B of 408D3 because that implies that you might have a problem if you violated the one-year rule. So basically, uh, so that could basically give you a problem with the one-year rollover. As it notes, it provides that this paragraph does not apply to any amount described in paragraph a little i, received by the individual for an IRA account or annuity. If at any time during the one-year period beginning on the day of receipt, such individual receives any other amount described in subparagraph. From an IRA account or annuity, which was not includable as in gross income because of application of this paragraph. So we do have the one-year rule to watch out for here under 408 d3 b, which can create some significant issues. But that is fine. Uh, we can maybe work around that, and generally it probably won't be an issue because hopefully we're not doing anything else. We can keep it clear the taxpayers are going to do trustee-to-trustee transfers generally. Hopefully, is not in that area. And secondly, we normally would not, we would hope, have another IRA account. Uh, they would not have this account still open. We presume in most cases the taxpayer will have done as this one did and transferred out of that account. So there won't be a risk of triggering a second rollover. But it is important to note that we will trigger the one year. It's also important to note that they justified getting it in there not by saying, even though the attorney from the trust account made the check payable to the taxpayer's IRA, the IRS did not hold it was the IRA's funds from day one. They didn't say this was really in the IRA from the beginning. What they said was the taxpayer rolled it over, most likely because it was the taxpayer who maintained the action, not the IRA not the custodian or the trustee of the IRA, largely because that basically doesn't make sense when you think about who you're filing a claim against. So the person who actually files the claim is the beneficiary, therefore the damages are awarded to the beneficiary, therefore it's out of the IRA, or so would go the argument. Why is that important, aside from this one-year rule that we figure may be difficult to trip over in real-world case? Well, the problem comes under the second denial of rollover treatment. And that's under Section 408D3, Cap C, which provides there's a denial of rollover treatment for inherited accounts. What is not answered here, but which raises an interesting problem, is had this been an inherited IRA account, would the taxpayer simply have been out of luck that there is no way to get these funds back into an inherited IRA account Because once the funds leave an inherited IRA, you no longer have the ability to make use of 408D3 and do a rollover to exclude those from your income. Now, the actual analysis using the private letter ruling would suggest that if you must treat this as a rollover, then you may be stuck. Now, whether that is required or whether it could be treated as a direct transfer, is an open question. Uh, you know, basically the issue has not been posed in this ruling. The question was not posed about whether such an inherited IRA account would be impacted. However, it would be important to note that if you have an inherited IRA account, the logic given in this ruling would not justify putting the money back in, because this ruling justified it solely based on the concept that the amount was a rollover under 408D1. So it poses us some very real risks here. We also should contrast this ruling, so we don't go too far out on a limb, with a much older ruling from 1979, ruling 7935130, that dealt with a slightly different situation. In this case, an employee had been terminated by his company, essentially, uh, and he, ru- he argued that he had been unfairly terminated, and one of the pieces of damages he received was a payment that was to compensate him for the lost pension balance that he would have had in the company, apparently had he not been terminated. That taxpayer, not surprisingly, sought to roll over that distribution to his IRA account. The IRS, however, in private letter ruling 79.35.130, denied the taxpayer the right to make that rollover. The IRS position in that case was that the distribution did not come from the plan nor was it ever in the plan. While it was to compensate him for funds that should have gone to the plan, should have was not argued to be good enough or not seen to be good enough to actually get the contribution to be made into a deductible contribution. Now, this is important, and the distinction here may very well be if we try to reconcile private letter rulings, and I'll add that since private letter rulings don't have to reconcile with each other, there's no reason to believe that we have to get these to agree, but let's presume that in theory we want them to. Uh, Basically, the the position would be that since the funds had never been in a retirement account, unlike the cases with the bad investment advice awards, since these funds had never been in a plan, they didn't count yet because they had never been taken through the plan system. Secondly, to be honest, and I think the IRS is correct here, since there was never an award or never none of the amounts that went into this or the award was ever subjected to the limitation rules that involve qualified plans, it would seem to make sense that basically you can't just kind of get an end run around the the allocator or contribution rules by being able to settle your way out of a claim and be able to get extra money dumped into the pension plan on your behalf so you could then hide that money or put that money away tax-free growth. So, essentially, be careful if you have a case where you have an award from a plan. Now, logically, if the award from the plan was for underperformance, then I think we have an argument stating that that would be a qualified rollover distribution. But in the case of 7935130, the issue was not underperformance. The issue was the money never went in. Similarly, if a taxpayer were to file a claim against a preparer claiming that they had not been notified or had been improperly notified of the amount they could have contributed to their IRA and the preparer coughs up the shortfall for them, maybe plus earnings, uh, the IRS also I believe would be correct there in ruling that in fact that never went in the plan, didn't come from the plan, uh, didn't come from the IRA, therefore cannot go back in what it never left. There was no distribution and that's the key point. In the other two cases the IRS ruling is there was a distribution from a retirement plan, or at least deemed distribution from retirement plan or an IRA and in this case there is no distribution from the retirement plan Rather, there is a payment from another party to compensate for amounts that did not go into the plan, never were in the plan, and stayed outside of it during that whole period. So this gives us a potentially interesting but not so wonderful result for IRA rollovers. Now, given the amount of problems that people had with investments in the early part of this decade, And given the fact that a number of them have looked to claims against brokerage firms, we're probably going to hit these issues more often in the next year or so as items get settled, awards get settled, and we move forward. At least this provides a place to go take a look to see how these rules apply and how they move forward. Changing subjects now, we'll take a look at a recent tax court memorandum decision, the case of Stewart versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum 2005-212, which was issued on September 12th by the tax court. Now we're going to look at this case primarily to look at uh, basically the application of the Cohen case, and or let's say the fact of when you can't apply Cohen, or what you need to have in order to make Cohen work. For those who aren't aware, the Cohen case is an old case, from 1930 second circuit case that held that the IRS could not reasonably tell a taxpayer they had no business deductions when while the taxpayer did not have records to substantiate the exact amount paid the taxpayer could show via evidence that in fact some expenses had been paid. In this case Mr. Cohen, an entertainer, who wasn't very good at keeping records, uh, clearly had incurred expenses. He was a well-known entertainer. Uh, it was clear to the court that he had incurred expenses in his business activities, but his records were poor. The court nevertheless said the IRS was not reasonable in saying he had no expenses whatsoever. They said clearly it was clear he had some, and that uh, while the court may estimate expenses as they note they're going to consider whose fault it is, the records are not there, and if the taxpayer is the one responsible they will kind of wait against the taxpayer. We're not going to estimate high if you just were sloppy in keeping records. But the Cohen case has served as a very useful case when taxpayers did not have adequate records or when the records were kind of iffy. Uh, basically, it served as a way that even without the records, if there was a reasonable basis for estimating an expense, you could take the position on the return and take a reasonable amount of expense offsetting business income, biasing on the Cohen Rule. That Cohen Rule caused Congress to pass a few cases where the Cohen Rule has been suspended by essentially the law. That is, If you don't have documentation under Section 274D for the items covered there, you do not get the deduction, period. What Congress was looking to do there was to block the Cohen rule. You can't use Cohen to argue your way out of the fact that you don't have any documentation to support your travel or your entertainment expenses or your auto expenses. You can't argue Cohen basically in those cases if there's no if you don't have some of the evidence required by the code, the point there was to require you to at least have something, that there would be a limit, a break on Cohen. Uh, But that's there, and those are there primarily because of Cohen, so that we don't end up with a Cohen situation. Uh, Congress felt there were abuses in that area. But in general, if not blocked by a code provision, the Cohen rule will apply to substantiate expenses. However, The Cohen Rule is not a blank check, as Mr. Stewart discovered in the case of Stewart v. Commissioner Tax Court Memo 2005-212. Mr. Stewart was an insurance agent in Ormond Beach, Florida. Now, Mr. Stewart ended up in tax court based upon the fact that he hadn't really reported any in, hadn't filed returns, as I recall the history here and basically had no records the irs assessed him tax based on the bank deposits method and did not give him any expenses well it turns out there was another case brenner versus commissioner tax court memo 2004-202 also involving a person in the insurance business also in ormond beach florida so two in one time you might conclude these two were aware of each other In the Orman case, Tax Court Memo 2004-202, the IRS again reconstructed income, but in this case went to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and determined that the average business of that type had business expenses equal to 54.77% of their income, and then essentially allowed his expense based upon that, said, okay, we'll give Orman credit for this much in expenses. Now what mister Stewart tried to do was argue I should get at least fifty percent off for expenses because the IRS showed in the Brenner Brenner case that they routinely allow fifty percent under the Cohen rule. The tax court disagreed and ruled against mister Stewart. What was the problem? Well the tax court pointed out a couple of things. First, on the rule that the IRS would have to be consistent, the court said not really in fact basically as the court goes here the court says quote how the commissioner treats other treated other taxpayers is generally irrelevant in making the determination for what they did in this regard and essentially the taxpayer would need to show bad faith that he was singled out for some reason that's uh, impermissible that would uh, such as race religion or some arbitrary classification had singled him out for worse treatment, that in essence the IRS had bad faith in not applying that to him. Secondly, the court said, the Cohen rule doesn't apply if you don't offer evidence you incurred expenses. The court indicated that the only thing that Mr. Stewart was offering was the argument the IRS always gives 50%. Mr. Stewart offered no evidence of any expenses he had incurred or that he had incurred expenses. They gave nothing to suggest it would happen so that because Mr. Stewart had not given such evidence, the court was not going to estimate the 50% level, and the fact the IRS conceded 50% in Brennan did not impact this case. Therefore, Mr. Stewart lost out. Now, the IRS did not succeed, though, in getting penalties applied to this. Uh, The IRS attempted to argue that Mr. Brennan had taken a frivolous position, and the court seemed to lean on some of the issues that Mr. Brennan tried to argue, that they probably were frivolous. But they held this particular position did not appear to be frivolous because there was a reasoned argument, even if they didn't go along with it, for this position. However, they uh, they warned him uh, to watch out for future litigation because kind of the issue being we think you're crossing the line or getting close to it. As well, the IRS didn't raise this frivolous argument claim until late in the process and that probably impacted this as well. But in any event, the Stewart case is instructive to be aware of the limits of using the Cohen case. So while Cohen is a very important case and one that quite often you have to use, there is no option but to use Cohen, uh, you need to be aware that the taxpayers need to develop the best information they can And remember that in the Cohen case, if we don't have records primarily due to the taxpayers' actions, that your estimates are going to come in at a lower level or they're going to be less generous than if the taxpayers' records are missing for a reason out of the taxpayers' control. For instance, in the past few weeks, the, if your taxpayer's records were in the path of Hurricane Katrina and the flooding that occurred in New Orleans related to that, and that's the reason why there are no records, that's probably going to get you a better result under Cohen than if your taxpayer just couldn't be bothered to keep records and basically ignored the whole issue. That will get you a much much worse result. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, September 24th, 2005. Tax update, again, is intended for those who are able to do their own independent research. Please confirm any items discussed in this program before using the position with a client's return. We will hopefully get another podcast recorded while down in Roanoke and have one up a week later for you once I get back to Phoenix. This has been Tax Update.